Constructed Criticism is brought to you by our three amazing sponsors. Grey Viking Games, Oasis Games, and PureMDGO.com. You can find them directly in the links in the show notes and use the codes associated with each sponsor. We appreciate each of them and definitely think that you should check them out for all your Magic the Gathering needs. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 378th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your foretold host, Mason, joined by my co-host, Goldspan Dragon Abe, and Smoldering Egg, co-host Spencer. I was going to say Spencering Egg, and then I forgot the card was called Smoldering Egg, and now we're here and we're thriving. So how long until I flip? Uh, Seven mana, not turns, buddy. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that was really funny. Maybe behind the scenes. <laughs> maybe Dude, next, that was that was funny. I was like, man, next that episode way better be than Allrun's epiphanies, right? But yeah, after last week's episode, Spencer messaged the group chat and he's like, "My opponent's egg flipped a turn early," and I was like, "Flipped a turn early? What does that mean?" <laughs> and then Spencer's like, "Yeah, he cast a spell, and I started dying." <laughs> so I didn't think it was turns. I thought it was just every time you cast a spell, it got a counter. Oh sure, yeah. And I, for some reason, I also thought it was five counters. <laughs> so, like, all kinds Oof. of me were wrong on this card. <laughs> Cards are nice. But it kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be going over all things blue-red. We're going to be talking a lot about blue-red dragons in standard, but also some other ways to play blue-red that have been popping up. Uh, this sort of archetype, as we're going to get into more later in the episode, is really expansive and really wide in a lot of ways. You can do a lot of different things. And if we're going to talk about like a deep dive on one type of deck in standard, this is the one that covers the most. And I think it's going to help you get a good picture of how these decks are trying to play, be played, and how you can attack these sort of decks and kind of get a feel for them. So it's going to be a really fun thing when we get to that. But first, we have to do our always improving segment. That is the point of the show. And Abe will kick things off with you. What was your always improving moment this week? My always improving moment this week um, was sticking to a lot of my my regiment i'd set for myself for how much time i was going to invest uh into arena and the standard format and also treating myself to a little bit of draft i've actually uh for the first time ever hit double mythic on arena mm-hmm. this uh this season basically just hitting the ground running with midnight haunts uh, release which i said i would do and i've been really excited to be doing it's been really fun um actually playing a lot of blue red along the way so it's pretty great that we're doing this episode um but yeah just like you know having a schedule and sticking to it and being like not uh not shy with the amount of hours i want to put in and knowing how many uh i want to put in a day or a week um and following through on that is something i have never really actually done for myself i've kind of more played when i've wanted to what i've wanted to like oh maybe i'll play some leagues of modern or some cube draft or like you know just jam whatever but actually organizing my time and setting us setting it aside um you know time to consume content time to uh time to actually be playing has really been showing some some sick results and uh been been really good that's awesome well did you hear that my always improving moment uh from this past week was really wanting to try and figure out some plans and test these different plans in small chunks um i've done a bad job about the wanting to test specifically modern going into this we talked about last week and then uh to it over to standard when we get closer to the invitational 
But uh, you know, there was some metagame challenge type sort of stuff on Arena, and so I wanted to I wanted to win some packs, some boosties, if you would. And so I tried a bunch of stuff uh, this week and did things like I'm going to play a bunch of disdainful strokes to try and beat some of these bigger blue red decks and sort of match them that sort of thing. And it yielded some good results, and uh, I think did a lot to help me kind of understand like where the real weak points of certain decks are and the best way to pivot and the way to kind of pivot your deck also around the things that are kind of weak points, you know? Um, things like the Esper Stadium deck uh, for the current standard is kind of like a fringe control deck. Seems like that deck would be very weak to a bunch of shatters, but it actually just kind of pivots into kind of being a more of a traditional, like, Delver deck at a certain point where it just kind of sticks a threat and protects it. So that sort of stuff was really enlightening and really helpful for me the past week. Spencer, what about you? Can, can we actually keep going on yours for a second? Because I really hit me, baby. like something that you just said and kind of the avenue in which you explained it. Because this is this is something that I used to be really good at that I think that I've gotten like too far away from in my deck building. And I noticed that actually because of the metagame challenge this week and adjusting. Uh, I played a bunch of metagame challenge with, with Blue Red and then I switched to uh, kind of the deck that I, I would play in center right now in Mono White. But I noticed I had a problem in my Mono White deck where I wasn't... I was trying to do too many things. Like... Like, if I'm going to play, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the Planeswalker now. The uh, Bahamut. The one that searches the second hand? Yeah, the, 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 if I'm going to play second hands, like, I really wanted to lean in and stuff. And in, the, and in the first challenge that I played in with Mono White, I played a mirror in, like, round four or something. And my opponent had a card that I actually had in my very first build. Which is the uh, the spirit that you know makes the makes another a flying spirit when you play your second spell. And even though I won the match, that card was like really insane for them. And it was really funny because I I thought to myself like you know you used to be a lot better at like identifying what your deck was trying to do, Spencer, making sure that your deck did that first and then adjusting to the metagame. And too often now I just try to adjust to the metagame first as the first part of my deck building goes. And I really like that you try different packages within the same things to adjust for the metagame rather than building for the metagame. Yep. Yeah. I think it's important. I don't know. I think uh, you can figure out a lot of really important stuff uh, just by kind of thinking about how the games play out. And often I think that sort of thing will go a long way. Like I think if you are able to figure out like, hey, how does the Blu-ray deck win? And you think about it, and you're like, well, they cast Alvarin's Epiphany and Goldspan Dragons. Like, well, if I had three Disdainful Strokes on my deck, they only have five more cards that can beat me. And I have some other cards that stop those cards as well. So I'm going to try doing that sort of thing. And I think sometimes uh, they don't play out as well in practice because they kind of change stuff. But other times, it plays out perfectly. And uh, just, you know, a little bit of theory crafting and a little bit of applied testing, and you can go a long way and really min-max your time as well, which I think is super important for, you know the stuff that's coming up. I mean, this is kind of a weird thing we haven't mentioned yet, but like there's like kind of a Grand Prix in Vegas since we recorded our last episode being announced for a month and a half, which I'll be at. And there's like the Star City Games Invitational and those tournaments, which I'll be at as well. So there's a lot of testing and things I got to do and that sort of stuff. And I'm sure there'll be other people there who I hope to see you at the event. But, uh, you know, you can get a lot more done with your testing that sort of way by using your free time where you can't play Magic thinking about how cards will play out and then testing those in the time you do have. So... We should do a podcast on applied testing. That is actually like something that I think that uh, would help the listeners a lot. My my always improving yeah. moment this week uh, was a little bit different. Um, obviously, like 
it's funny i should just use the one on the the from the intro but uh i, I wanted to be pretty sp- specific this weekend uh the, what i wrote down was making a mistake earlier in a game doesn't make you less likely to make the right play later and for some context in this you know i often for me like it can often take me a long time to like understand a board state if you are a long-time listener, you heard me talking about how I need to slow down a lot in Magic um, because I just constantly am playing off of instinct rather than, like, evaluating. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're a really long-time listener, you know that that actually cost me an SEG Top 8 against uh, a Thopter Foundry deck uh, when I was playing Sultai in Legacy. And, you know, the other day I made a misplay, like, the same misplay three times and saw it later... And my first thought was, like, I cannot believe that I missed this. I missed this three times. But I immediately made the correct play, let it go, and kind of just moved moved forward. And it actually flipped um, it flipped the, the matchup for me uh, quite, quite a bit, where I was I was um, I was losing with with <clears throat> sorry I was I was losing with um, with dragons against monogreen pretty consistently. Uh, and understanding like how kind of kind of how the 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 sequencing should work was was pretty big. Um, yeah, I should have written down what the play was, but I remember thinking about it and just remembering like too often I think that we feel embarrassed for no reason, and I think that the truth is is that like <laughs> nobody knows you misplayed, and also nobody really cares other than like your opponent when they feel like they got lucky. And just moving forward and like making the right play, the time that you can make it is just, it's it's pretty easy and and something to remember. Yeah, I, I really kind of want to speak on yours as well for a second there, because it reminds me of the famous quote I always say, uh, and people I think think I'm joking all the time, but it's true, and it's from uh, the inspirational, iconic Hannah Montana of "Everybody makes mistakes, everybody has those days," you know, and you know. The, the line is like, it's kind of funny and it's a little lighthearted, but it is serious, right? Like, it, it's just the truth. Like, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes misplays in these games. And you cannot let those tear you down, especially when you're in game. I was talking to a friend about this just yesterday, actually, where I was like, yeah, I hate myself from years ago in tournaments where I made mistakes, but I don't let that affect me in the game. I let that motivate me to do better and to push me forward. And just because you lost, it's the same logic as like, well, if you lost the last round of the tournament, it doesn't mean you're going to lose the next round, right? right? Like those things are independent of each other. Just like you made the wrong play last time, it does not mean you'll make the wrong play again. Right. And so, you know, one, I think one it's good the, that you're kind of that. One of the things to to kind of think about that on that, like there was kind of this meme a few years ago. I think I think Magic players have gotten better at it, where like being self-deprecating was like a pretty big thing that we did as like competitive magic players and we've still gotten... do <laughs> that's fair <laughs> I, I i think that we i haven't had tournaments in two years yeah, is what happened. <laughs> a... but but uh, i was i there's the the for those who know the best uh smash brothers player in the world his name is uh he, he goes by mk leo and i was watching one of his videos this week and he like one of the things that he said was you know if you gave it you know if you watched your own matches what would you think and he said i would think that guy sucked I was like, ah, come on, like, you like you would see your mistakes because you're great, not because, not because like, not because you suck, because you obviously don't suck. You're like actually the greatest player in the world, and 
you know, I, I think about all of the conversations that I've had with Paulo where, where, you know, Paulo's pretty hard on himself. Seth is really hard on himself. I mean, even on even on this podcast, you guys have, have heard Seth be hard on themselves. And I think that being hard on yourself is like, okay. But at some point, you got to be like, okay, I saw the right line. Like, have a positive mindset about the fact that you got there, not a negative mindset that you missed it. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I... In the like limited amount of coaching I've uh, I've done with people, like usually players local to me or people who I know, there's always one story that I bring up because a common thing that a lot of players do is when they notice that they've made a mistake, their whole world falls apart, right? Like they know that now not things aren't as good as they could have been, and now they're really worried about it. But there was a PPTQ that I won, like it was like the first couple weeks of con standard Sick brags, Abe. where. Sick brags. Yeah, you know, I won a PPTQ back in 2015, man. It's, it was a wild time. I know you did. You brought it up just seconds yeah. ago. And, Please. And and this misplay I made was that um, I'd like cast. I, I had a Soulfire Grandmaster in play, and my opponent's playing mono red, and they've attacked with their one drop. So I'm thinking, do I attack with my Soulfire Grandmaster, or am I leaving it back to block? And I think about this for like 35 seconds. I need to make sure I get it right. It's a pretty big decision. And then I go, okay, I can attack. I should attack. And I attack. And then I look at my hand and I just have a Manus Rider. And I'm like, wow, I wish I would have cast that before combat. But as soon as you notice those mistakes, you just have to like be like, okay, this is the game I'm playing now. I'm in my post-combat main phase with a Manus Rider in my hand. Is it still better to cast this Manus Rider or do something else? And I just kept going with it and cast my Manus Rider post-combat. Embarrassingly, it was like, yeah, well, you make mistakes, and I proceeded to like, you know, win that game, win the tournament. It's a great teaching moment for that kind of thing because there's nothing that one in one independent misplay or one independent thing doesn't stop you from performing well and doing well in the tournament. You know, and, and I just think it's like a, a really important remember, thing to remember all the time when when you play is like identifying where the mistake came from is really important, and like giving yourself reinforcements, to make sure you don't do it again is important, but it doesn't have to be like the end of the world <laughs> dude you just made me so happy we did an entire episode on this like years ago called don't compound mistakes like don't don't make your mistake worth a mistake later um, yeah yeah i agree yeah second cost fallacy is real i would love to do an episode one day on and this might be, need to be like a thing where we talk about doing grab bad episodes we talk about a lot of little topics yeah. in one but th- i think this is a one that we should really do one on where it should be part of that at least where yeah it's magic players realizing the difference between a mistake and a hard decision because I think too often those things get conflated in oh, magic players that. minds. And I think very often the mistake is something like what Abe did, right? Where it's like, yeah, you have a Mantis rider. It's the only thing you can cast. It has haste and you're about to attack. That's a mistake. <laughs> you know, right. that's fine. But if you're expressive iterationing on turn three or whatever, right. And there's like a bunch of different options that are all really good. There's a lot of different ways the game can play out. And there's a lot of different variable points and there might be a, an optimal play, but it isn't a guaranteed mistake. I watched this happen this past weekend, actually. I played a legacy tournament locally, and I was watching my friend play, and he went land DRC bobble, right? And then he, like, surveilled off his uh, DRC, and he left the card on top. Or he'd, he'd been, it doesn't even really matter. And then he popped the bobble, and he thought for a second about who he should look at, and he was just like, eh, I'll look at myself, right? And it's like, well, you should look at your opponent's deck. You're going to draw that card no matter what, and you have no, no spells left to do. You just lose information. And that's a mistake. Right. And later on in the game, he cast expressive iteration and like took a, a line that maybe wasn't the most optimal or was a little high risk. And at the end of the match, I was like, do you want to talk about your mistake? And he was like, yeah, I should have expressed it this way. And I was like, no, 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 no. 
on turn one, you bobbled the wrong person. So you didn't know, like if you knew he has a force in hand or like something along those lines, that could be really helpful to know. So I think we should do an episode or something like that on that, because I think those are actual mistakes. (laughs) I miss the always improving segment, man. This was, this was just a great conversation. Mason, thank you. No problem. Thank y'all. All right. We've done that. We've wrapped it up. You know how it be. Let's move on to our main topic today for the training grounds. And we're talking about the blue, red uh, kind of colors and standard. I, to be honest, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Goldspan Dragon. Kind of the blue, red dragon deck might be a way to look at this. But we're going to cover things that aren't just Goldspan decks. So don't worry, it's not going to be all talking about the all-powerful Goldspan Arena today. Um, let's probably start off with that one, though, because I think that is the version that people t- think about the most. Uh, when they when you talk about blue red decks, I think Goldspan Dragons, Hour and Epiphany really pops out to players. And there's a couple ways you can do that with playing cards like Smoldering Egg or not playing Smoldering Egg and playing less creatures. And Abe, what do you think about? Let's start with specifically the Egg version of these Goldspan decks. Do you think these are stronger decks than others? Do you think that like what is like the appeal to be playing this sort of deck over the other type of blue red stuff? So um, I think right now, if I had to like pick what the strongest cards in blue were and red were, like the two that come to mind are reds is Goldspan Dragon and blues is Alarin's Piffney. And especially Alarin's Piffney in conjunction with having like a board presence is just one of the best ways to go over the top of the rest of the format. There's a lot of um, like a lot of the Eskis Chariot small ball stuff can be really invalidated by um, just taking a couple turns in a row and, and swinging the tide very suddenly. The amount of mana you get access to and the amount of advantage you get access to from Alan's Piffney is huge. The tokens are very good. If you have multiples, the game can really snowball out of control. And Goldspan Dragon makes it so that casting a 7-mana spell is really, really accessible. Um, these kind of blue-red egg versions are, I think, right now the most popular blue-red decks. Uh, the, the Smoldering Egg is a really good thing to be able to like have a board presence when you cast epiphany previously in the old standard format you had adventure creatures like uh you know brazen borrower or um or bone crusher giant that you kind of had lying around and they're pretty cheap to deploy so that when you finally got to the stage game you're alan's epiphanying you would have this presence to close the game with without necessarily needing to have you know a, a dragon or uh like an activatable faceless haven or something um but this card does that does that job very well. Um, my biggest issue, I think, with the decks right now is that Smoldering Egg is um, it's too fragile and too vulnerable a card. So personally, I've been playing a lot of uh, dragons builds that have what, go ahead, go ahead. That builds that just have different uh, different threat suites that are a lot slower and playing more to control the game until I can safely develop a Goldspin Dragon or resolve an Epiphany and then a dragon or like an, an Immerth or a Moonvale region. Really just trying to to change the role I'm playing rather than being one of like a combo deck where I'm like going to go off the turn I cast Piffney to maneuvering the game to a point where my Epiphanies can win me the game. Um, and, and really there's a lot of different ways the deck's being built right now, but overall the reason that this deck is so powerful is just that Epiphany is one of the strongest cards in the format and Goldspan Dragon is easily the biggest mana engine in the format. Uh, as well as one of the best things to pair with extra turns. I, before we move on, because I do want to talk about what you were talking about there, Spencer, because I, I heard you start to say something I was curious about myself. I think there's one more thing that Abe kind of alluded to. He, he mentioned the specific to the strongest blue and the strongest red card, but I think the biggest pull and thing you'll see in every one of these is it decks we talk about is expressive iteration. 
Uh, I think that's a very important card to keep in mind. I'm talking about all these blue-red decks. It is the card that gives these blue-red this mid-game to late-game draw that pulls them so far ahead and allows them to see so many more cards and enable these game plans. And that card is really being a big, kind of the third pro, uh, point in the triangle of power for Izzet. So I did want to mention that because every deck we will talk about today plays three to four expressive iterations, rightfully so. Spencer, what are we going to talk about when it comes to the egg versus Moonvale Regent, Amaranth type stuff? Well, the the thing that the thing that stood out to me in what Abe said is is kind of similar to what I wanted to say about the egg. So the the version I played the most did have egg. So the first thing I did is I played the version that Abe got mythic with. The second thing I did is kind of adjust Abe's deck for how I was playing into the metagame. Like for me, um, I I think I'm either in man I don't remember. I'm either in like diamond two or plat two. I'm in one of the two. And so for me, like, I was playing against a lot of mono white and a lot of uh, mono green. And weirdly, and obviously a lot of werewolves. Werewolves is kind of everywhere. And so, like, against certain decks, like mono white and and werewolves, the the egg's really good. Against mono green, it's really bad. Like, almost all of the creatures are going to end up with four power, like, in in, like, two seconds. And I actually think the reason that people have moved further away from like straight gruel and have diverged into a jund and mono green decks is actually because of level zero egg because it slows the game down enough that you then have to you have to either attack through it or or uh like just be a different deck right like the the jund deck at this point is like you know playing like a valky and like it's it's just actually straight up a jund deck now um which is interesting. I, I I think that the I don't know that it's fragile. I think that it's getting cross hate from the fact that like all of the best creatures, whether it's Moonvale Regent in the Jund decks or these decks, whether it's Goldspan Dragon in the Jund decks or these decks, or you know all of these things. Like we talked about four toughness for like multiple minutes last week, right? And now this card's getting that hate. So I don't know that it's fragile. I think the format is adjusting to the things above it. But the the other thing I did want to mention is like I have literally never lost a game with an Ashmouth Dragon in play, and I also have never beaten an Ashmouth Dragon once it's flipped. So it, I don't know if it's like a win more card or if it is dependent on the deck you're playing, but I don't know that it's fragile as much as like it. You know, it, for toughness is just like a thing people are trying to deal with. Yeah, I, I think when I describe it as fragile, I'm probably even like projecting a little bit of my uh, like play bias into it where there's a lot of really good things about the card. Like having a two mana play so that you can follow up with an expressive iteration on turn three is really big. Um, like my build that I hit mythic with, I built specifically to be able to foretell on two a lot of the time because you need to, your expressive iterations are your best cheap spells outside of your like dragon spires. And so but you want to cast them on turn three. So you need to have something to do on turn two with your mana. And Smoldering Egg does that. But I think that the fact that it's so often exposed and you want to get it out means that uh, because I was playing the games in such a controlling way and the way I'd built my deck was the way it was, that maybe I might be projecting that uh, the card was was not as protectable in the early game uh, onto it. But it could be really good. You know, one of the things, though, you just made me think of is it does have... I don't know if you, if you how much of the Smoldering you played, Mason, but, like, it does actually have awkward play patterns specifically against werewolves. So, like, in the early turns, it's really good, right? Because it's a spell you can play. But then you're forced 
into like your counter spells being bad because you want to leave up counter spells or prismari command against werewolves and then their werewolves flip and like the the two three that gives haste like if that thing flips against this card like this card is just dead like it is it doesn't even matter anymore yeah uh, this is funny we'll get into this here in a little bit when we get off the gold space uh, off the <coughs> sorry the dragon like <coughs> so sorry the really dragony builds but i've been like playing a lot of not this kind of blue red and I, i've played a good amount of the deck that, like abe hit mythic with and little tweaks to it but i remember talking to abe and i was like i do not like what the egg was doing to the deck at the moment because it was making you kind of play a lot, a lot of threes and a lot of fours so that you can consistently flip the egg because the kind of play pattern was you slam it on two as a blocker and you would like to flip it by turn five so you can start controlling the board a little bit or you want to play it in alvarens in the same turn right like kind of play it maybe protect it for a turn then alvarens and start smacking them blowing them up which is it's, it's i actually have a version of this deck that i haven't tried yet that does not play epiphany and is actually mm -hmm. a delver egg deck instead yeah you should try playing the deck i posted to car kingdom uh you i think you would really like that it, okay. it avoids the egg but you play a lot of similar cards and you play okay. hermit in the main deck so I do uh, like, it might be i do like hermit that's a card I'm, I'm excited to talk about yeah the hermit's really really good spoilers uh but i think one of the things that the egg does, and Spencer kind of mentioned this, or maybe it was Abe, sorry, so sorry to get confused there, but you were like how the egg is good at blocking its mono-white early, and then like it transforms and it starts shooting down the mono-white creatures and kills them really quick, right? But against green, it's really bad because like obviously their stuff attacks through you. It also compounds in other ways in that matchup where your dragon's fires or a draconic roar or whatever it is, the one that you reveal a dragon, by not having a Moonveil Regent or an Imrath, you actually can't kill things like the old troll as consistently because now you only have gold span in your deck. And you have to actually flip the egg before you can start killing those things by choosing that as a dragon. So there are other ways in which this kind of card, I think, is really metagame dependent. And kind of the way you build your blue-red dragons deck, I think the suite of dragons that you play as your supporting cast or your threats, maybe I should say, are much more important about the type of things that you're going to be dealing against. So like Abe having Moonveil region in his deck, right, allows him to really shoot down the trolls and stuff like that and have a much stronger game against these sort of chunky beatdown decks that maybe the egg doesn't quite really interact with as well and is kind of a lot weaker too when you build your deck in that sort of manner. So I think there's I, a lot of merit to both builds. Yeah, I actually, for what it's worth, um, I posted the build that I was playing the most on Twitter. I mm -hmm. think that you'd be crazy not to play Moonveil region even if you're playing egg. And also, mm -hmm. I know that Abe's build that he got Mythic with didn't have this, but one of the first things I did is add the the five mana five five dragon with Ward Four is at least a one of in my deck. I've had it as a yeah, one that's Imrith. My my current build is actually playing yeah, I think, two Moonveil Regents and one Imrith. Yeah, and I'm thinking I think, even of trying out three. It, it's yeah, been very impressive. I, I think that card's like pretty insane. Um, and and regardless of whether or not you're playing Egg, I do believe that you should be playing some combination of those two dragons. Sure, that's fair. I think the, you know, to kind of like round things up here on the, the dragon, like the really dragon heavy side of stuff, I think these decks are leaning too much on the permission side of things with Divide by Zero and Sought coming. And I think that's sort of one of the advantages. It's one of the advantages and disadvantages of Abe's deck, right? Like Abe's deck's like setting up a Sought coming on two a lot. Like you mentioned, you're foretelling a bunch, right? Uh, and then you're like sticking these Moonveil regions and you're kind of delvering people. But I think this really makes you like get pretty exploitable in the metagame. Because Divide by Zero is very strong. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit when we're talking about key cards in the deck. That's just like a very powerful answer to a lot of things that are going on. It's kind of like a bad Aethergust or a bad Remand might be a way to look at it. Um, but still, a bad version of those cards are great. 
And this makes you really weak to things like mono white, I think. And so I think you need to be very cognitive of what the people in the metagame are doing, where the trends are going, and you just have to adjust your blue red dragon deck to what's going on there. Because if people start playing a bunch of mono white because they're like, yeah, you're playing a bunch of Saw Cummings Divide by Zeros, you're spending three mana for my one mana spells, you're not going to win those interactions ever. And so you're going to need something like Smoldering Egg to actually let you catch up when you're spending more mana like that. So your cards have a little extra oomph to them. Um, let's talk really quick about the snow versions of blue red, because these are very similar to the dragon versions a lot of the time. And we mentioned this a little bit on last week's episode, but the snow versions are kind of, you know, they are typically like the blue red dragon deck, but they have frostbite and faceless Haven as, uh, some extra cards they're leaning towards. And they lean on the Snowlands a little bit in order to have that extra oomph. But Man is a little clunkier at times, you know, having a, some, a tap blue-red Snowland has that, as well as having colorless lands in the form of Faceless Haven. Spencer, last week on the episode, you were saying maybe we should just cut snow. What do you think now, a week later, after kind of being to play it more yeah. and knowing we're going to do this episode? I, I played a bunch. I am I believe that there is not... So, so here's the thing. I do actually think that Frostbite is a little bit better than I thought it was mm-hmm. as of as of, like, you know, a week later. I don't know that it's worth it though. the The thing is, is like let let's say that I wanted to play Frostbite. Like, why am I playing Frostbite? It's because I want one mana spells, right? Well, if I want one mana spells, and I want to interact earlier, and I want to do things with my mana earlier, there's not really a reason to play Snow in my mind because I would rather just play a Delver version with the like the like whatever the opt equivalent is and the shock. Consider. Equivalent. Yeah, consider. Play with fire. Yeah, and play with fire. Like, I I think that. If I want to do things with my mana earlier, there are better ways to do it. And also, it doesn't even help with the snow because I'm kind of forced into playing, like, more tap lands. I'm kind of forced into, uh, I don't know. I, I think that the benefits to snow are not good enough for me to want to do the snow stuff. So here's my hot take. I haven't, I haven't told any of y'all this. I've been, I've been sitting on this like a smoldering egg ready to hatch it for y'all. I kind of want to try playing blue-red. But with snow basics as my only snow stuff and a couple of frosty bites in the board, so that when I'm playing like Abe's deck where I'm a little weaker to mono white, I can kind of pivot in, have those frost bites, get a little some early shocks, and then they scale a little bit later in the game, where like the mono white deck sometimes reaches three toughness. You just like so have, a little have, more early you, like action. don't play face the savings. Your basics are just snow basics. Sometimes yeah. you hit three basics. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that, that is a reasonable take. I don't, I don't know if that's good or not, but it was something I was thinking about. I thought week. about doing something similar, but I think my biggest issue with that plan is that, especially with how good Divide by Zero has been and how much it's become like a rising presence in the metagame and how much that card taxes your sideboard slots, um, because you don't want to play... I mean, if you're playing four Divide by Zero, you can probably go with playing three Lessons. You're probably not going to cast all four in a game, but you want to have at least three and, and have a good set of coverage with your with your Lessons in your board. but you already have like burning hands, which is a necessity because of like Ren and Seven and um, and Eskis Chariot, and there's not really much more room to be bringing in. Like I'm already bringing those in against Mono White. It, I'm not sure that there's really room to be like playing the additional shock effects mm-hmm. um, without making room somewhere else uh, in the list, which which I haven't really thought about. But like I, I had a similar thought before, but after playing. Uh, playing a bit with it i'm I'm not sure yeah i 
My guess would be that if you're playing the deck I'm talking about, we've concluded divide by zero is not where we want to be as heavily because we think Mono White's a real player. Yeah. And I think if, if that's the case, I we could probably get away with trimming a little on divide by zero. So I, I don't know. That's something that's probably like a bigger talk, but I think that I think as we're gonna get to as we talk about all these blue red versions, blue red is very deep and very underexplored, I think, relative to how much people are actually playing it, which is a bunch. People are playing blue red a lot. It put up like five different builds in the top 16 of the, the the Sunday standard challenge. So like it's a lot of different builds, especially for a standard format that's so healthy and so diverse. Um, it's kind of sick there. Also, can we just like shout out the learn mechanic really quick that like everybody was like dunking on for a year. They're like, this is the dumbest mechanic. Like it'll never see standard play. And like now there's like black, white learn decks. There's like green, white learn decks. Like there's so many. Not only that, I'll just say this play two. Uh, environmental scientists in your sideboard. It's like the one you always need. That's all I'm saying. I, agree. I see everyone. I, I agree. You gotta get some science in your life. I don't know. Anyways. That's, uh, a, that's a lesson to live by. But uh, ooh, that was <laughs> such a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, but yeah, Abe, do you have any strong feelings on snow or should I move on? Do you think we kind of covered... No, I think that, you know, the snow build is always going to... Like, the biggest draw to snow is Frostbite, and when Frostbite's good, if you have a bunch of mono white in your local metagame, a lot of mono green your local metagame you need to answer those things definitely look at snow but i think right now with um so much of the format being about uh Essex chariot and uh and goldspan dragon as we we're talking about last week four is the big number and three is just not quite there i, I actually think the problem for blue red is that faithless haven is actually just like kind of a cost instead of a benefit to snow in this deck whereas like i can just play manlands that make colored mana for me so like what what am i actually i'm just getting frostbite at that point whereas like if yeah. i play another snow deck i'm getting faithless haven and that's like why mono green is like yeah we're just we're playing we're playing snow basics yeah, yeah that's a good point let's, let's actually talk about some of those decks that get to do that and they get to play things like hall the storm giant Den, the bug bear and that's like the delver versions of blue red and so when we talk about these delver versions we are going to talk about some decks that don't include delver make sure that you know but let's start with the actual brand and butter delver decks i on our set review episode, so I'd be very surprised if Delver was good in Standard. I, after having played against Delver a bunch in Standard, uh, feel incredibly validated, and I think about how smart and handsome I am all the time now. I am not impressed by these Delver actual builds of the deck, especially like, uh, shout out to Zan, friend of the show. Zan's got like 12 basics in this, like 12 lands that produce mana, and the rest are double lands. And he has 20, like, five mana sources. And Zan's like flipping his Delvers really consistently, and he's even moved away from the blue red builds. And so I, I have not been hyper impressed by actual Delver in these decks, but I have been hyper impressed by Delver like game plans. Before we move on to Delver like game plans, how do you, you two feel about the actual Delver? And we'll start with you, Spencer, because I know you're a boomer. You know, you love Delver. <laughs> uh, oh man, I don't know if that's true about me, but uh, <laughs> I, I, here, here's the thing is that I think people are expecting Delver games out of Delver, like blue-white Delver games out of these Delver decks, and that is not what these Delver decks offer. I, I think that if you are if you want to play Delver in your blue-red deck, it is because you want to use your mana early. And if you believe that the format is about using all of your mana every turn, I do believe that Delver is a good option to make that happen. Uh, okay. I think that, like, I've played a lot against the Mono Blue Snow Delver deck, 
And like mm-hmm. that deck, like I'm like that's a bad Delver. Like there's there like the the thing is is that a Delver itself, it, if you play like obviously the, I just talked about how I don't have or Arn's Epiphany in my deck, but I'll, actually quite a few of my losses were to non-snow Delver decks that like played Delver plus the the two one mana cards that we talked about the the play with fires and the consideration is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is is like. Delver wasn't that great, but like the second you have a Delver in play and you play an Elrond's Epiphany, you're like, oh, okay, well, now, now I'm just as dead as before. the The problem is, is that the problem with Delver in these decks, and the reason that I was so hesitant to do it, is that you end up in this spot where like you're playing this one mana card that you want to tempo your opponent out with, and then. You're, which is why I, I was moving away from Elrond's Epiphany, because, like, playing a 7-drop and a 1-mana creature in the same deck with, like, with a deck that I cannot play less than, like, I don't know, how many mana sources can you play? Like, the the 2-mana uh, Force Spike that is a land, great with Delver. Honestly, it's just great in Standard, but uh, is it Joswari's Disruption, I think is the name of the card? Yeah, yep. Nailed it. The the problem is, even with that and the red flip land, the Shatter Skull Smashing or whatever, I don't know. It, it's it's hard for me to understand, like, is that just better than Smoldering Egg in the format? Is that just better than playing Blue-Red Control? Like, I think the format needs to, and I said this on the set review, I think it has to be about how you're using your mana, not anything else mm-hmm. and i don't know where we're at right now that's fair abe do you have any real thoughts on the delver in the deck uh yeah i mean as a true paper boomer with uh with a love of delver secrets these are the delver secrets for the youtubers out there the youtube listeners these are the delver secrets i played in the blue white delver deck in standard when i was in high school if you these pull out babies, a rune chapters pike right now i'll demo you ten dollars I, I, it's not here. These are actually the ones I play in Legacy. Oh, uh, but I, so I, I, I have four. Real quick. <laughs> Mason? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. The time's caught up to you, Abraham. <laughs> I haven't played Legacy in a long time. This is the last Legacy deck I played. But um, yeah, like Delver of Secrets has always been a means to an end, right? The the best thing about Delver of Secrets is that it's such a cheap deployable threat. And uh the rest of your interaction can do everything else after you've paid only one mana for such an efficient creature. And right now, the best sets of interaction don't really lie in blue-red. I do think there were some really impressive things in the blue-red deck. Um, the list that I saw, because I watched... I'm a huge Zan fan. Zan and I have a huge amount of history. I love his stream. Um, even if sometimes I disagree with the decks he plays. Uh, but I've watched his journey go from blue-red Delver to... Um, to all the way to Demir Delver. And one of the big things that, that impressed me the most in the Blue-Red Delver decks was uh, Lear, actually, as a top-end card, because you you played a lot of counter magic, but uh, you also played a lot of the, the cheap red spot removal and burn spells that made Lear really appealing, and also specifically divide by zero, not actually countering spells, but generating a big tempo advantage, meant that you could have something to stick like behind your leer to protect it and um 
So there's like a lot of good things you can do in the smaller like tempo-y shell where your top end isn't uh, isn't so big. But the real problem is that the interactive spells aren't good enough to back up what Delver wants to be doing in uh, in red right now. So the blue red Delver deck, um, I think is is just not quite there. And the card Delver of Secrets is just also not quite there. Is there's it's, just a lot of good answers to it. It's funny because like. In in my head, like in the set review, I imagine blue red Delver a lot different than what's currently happening. Maybe I'll try and build that, but like I don't think blue blue red Delver dragons. I don't think that's where the deck needs to be, and I think that it's a lot closer to like the the red the red uh, two two with haste that that uh, with uh, I want to say kicker, but that's not. There's not actually a name. Bloodthirsty adversary. Yeah. Yeah, the adversary. I, I think that that's closer to what this deck would need to be. And the truth is, is that because the format is dedic- is predicated on four toughness, unless somehow that like scry one uh, unsummon is good, that you're just not going to see blue red delver. Yeah, unsummon shock have to be good for the blue red delver deck to be good. Yeah. And right now, I just don't think those cards are. Right, necessarily yeah. worth it, but you know. also the the cards getting incidentally blocked in like the part where it's supposed to be closing the game out. There's like a bunch of Moonvale Regents, Aaron's Epiphany, two birds stop it, uh, Ren seven tokens stop it. There's just like a lot of things Ren, are actually Ren stopping. Seven, super wrong about that card. I thought that the people were like overreacting that card. Card's really good. Yeah, card's great. But let's move on to Chariot. Yeah, so the Chariot builds. This is what I really want to talk about. Um, I I have I, I call it this because. I built this kind of deck to really prey on like what people are doing with like four toughness, that sort of thing. And I think the Delvery type game plan of having cheap answers with cheap threats and riding them to victory is actually quite strong. So I have explored this in a completely different avenue where my kind of the creatures I'm playing instead of playing Delver secrets are Malevolent Hermit, which is the disturbed creature that you can spend a blue and sack it to counter something that's a non-creature spell unless they pay three. This is incredibly powerful. Everything we kind of talked about going on. Uh, and the format when it comes to these, like, Ren and Sevens, Chariots, Alarms, Epiphanies, it's really taxing on them. And it's actually great against aggro decks, by the way. Like, it's not the best thing in the world, but in the early games against a white deck, it trades for two of their bodies pretty easily. Uh, and then the other big one is Suspicious Stowaway, which is the 1-1 unblockable that loots when it hits, that transforms into a werewolf, uh, where on the back half it draws when it hits. And I've kind of built my whole deck around playing the Stowaway with a Hermit early and living mana up. And then interacting with what our opponent's doing and kind of crossing the finish line in the later game with four Goldspan Dragons having a couple hour and epiphanies as a way to go over those other decks once we've kind of answered a lot of what they're doing. And I think things like uh, Fading Hope, which is an unsung we kind of talked about, like if Delver's going to be good and that sort of thing, you need Fading Hopes to be actually good. And I kind of think they are good right now. I think Fading Hope specifically is really good at cleanly answering a Renin 7. A lot of the times... They'll play Ren, and the default game plan is to minus and make a token. It's the strongest way to impact the board, and really, you kind of need that to protect your Ren and seven unless you're super far ahead. I think Fading Hope is really, really good in that sort of spot. I think it's really good against the Blue Red Dragon deck, too, especially things like Moonbell Regent, that a lot of their power comes from being stuck on the board and being a presence. I think that sort of stuff goes across there. So I think things like that, I think uh, cards like Demon Bolt are a little inbred for what's going on, but it's the foretell deal for i think things like that need to be really explored and looked into have and you, that's basically the, the the whole deck have you tried you know? a couple like splitting your burning hands like a couple main a couple side uh i thought about that i kind of thought uh 
Demon Bolt is a little better in the deck simply because for Suspicious Snowway, you really don't want to cast anything on turn three, right? Like you want to play it. Yeah, you also yeah. want to use your mana. And so Demon Bolt, one of the cool things about it compared to a card like Sock Coming is Sock Coming costs four mana if you, uh, what's it called, Fertell it because it's two on the back, two on the front. Demon Bolt is always three mana. It really just right. depends on wh- when you get to cast it. So I found I could suspend a Demon Bolt, put it in the Fertel zone, I'm sorry, I should say. And then if they don't do anything that I need to answer with, it's fine. It sits there for later. And so I have, you know, not had that huge of problems actually with things like Modern Green, because I've also built my sideboard to kind of pivot into more of a blue-red control deck. And I play, like, a bunch of burn down the houses and stuff like that, as that's, like, my answer to green in combination with Burning Hands. So... I think that the Delver-type game plan is actually really good. You just need to be a little bit bigger in your Delver thing and be less about permission and more about answers in the format. And I think that's kind of the way to be building these sort of blue-red decks. I'm curious what you two think about this. I know Abe has his... I mean, I've talked to Abe about this deck since I've played it, you know, from last week for, for the podcast. And what do y'all think about this sort of approach to doing things? And I see Goldspan Dragon is $60 on Modo. I'm jealous the, of Abe. Goldfish I can tell life. who your favorite co-host is. Uh, he was the one who he was the one who was talking to me about Blue Red. He's never gonna slam Not Blue really Red. did I play it. I made fun of him for building it. So. Yeah, yeah. Abe hates the deck. Abe thinks he called it inbred Blue Red. Uh, <laughs> at what point in the format are you just reacting, and at what point are you inbred? I don't know. I I think I think I like a lot it's of a what you're saying. A little bolt. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little, that's a little inbred. I, I, I think that like while I actually do agree that like Demon Bolt is maybe like a little bit inbred for the format. I don't. I don't know that that's a problem. Like that's just where the format might be right now. Um, you really made me want to build it with. So, so one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, recently, and what you just made me think about, is actually Ray of Frost. I think is the name of the card. It's the two man enchantment mm-hmm. that like taps down a red creature forever. I had that in the first build of it. Yeah. And one of the things is, is like it doesn't flip Delver, so it just like if you're gonna play like this version of the deck with like Delvers, it's just like. You can't play it. Um, I don't know. I, I think that blue red is like a little bit deeper than I would have ever expected it going into this format. And I don't know if that's like the format is small, but Hermit, for what it's worth, has been maybe the best card in both my sideboard and like any time that it's in play. Uh, and I also have played against the one one you were talking about quite a few times and the card has also been insane so i don't know if like i don't even know that this deck needs to be blue red like i think it'd be any color combination you're like playing these really cheap threats uh and you just made me want to put the the vampire in these decks and just go ham yeah i think the reason i really like blue red is and i mentioned this earlier and this might just be a thing where it's like sometimes in the podcast when you're guiding the ship or whatever as the host things will get brought up later and they don't get said in the moment, but like I'm really big on expressive iteration. I think it is one of the most messed up magic cards since the throne of Eldraine era. It's not broken like Oko or anything like that, but this card provides an insane amount of selection and card advantage when you have like five lands to use it with. So I really wanted to build a deck that emphasizes that sort of oomph in the late game and having cheap threats and cheap answers outside of, of course, you know, the couple of gold span dragons. Uh, it's, I think it's really important. It's actually crazy but, how good that card is. Like we talked about that on yeah. mythic cast when I was on there and it is, it is somehow both your best top deck and your best mid game play like 80% of the time. And that is, that is a weird place for a card to be. 
Yeah, it there's a reason it is a big player in every format in Magic right now. It's because it is one of the best cards printed in the last couple of years. By none. Bar none. Uh, but I think that's going to kind of do that on the Delvery versions. I don't have that much I want to say. Abe, did you have anything you really wanted to add that Spencer and I didn't mention when it comes to these sort of demon multi decks? I know you did try them. So, um, so I did try them, and like I thought they were actually really good at solving the problem they set out to, to solve. I called them like inbred or whatever, and I like memed on them a bit when uh, when we were talking about. But them. they're but, good inbred. <laughs> but but they were successful in what they set out to do, which is like. Let me tell you a story about Rune Chanter's Pike, Abe. <laughs> <laughs> so so they're successful in what they set out to do right they that was a deck that was built to specifically attack a metagame that was full of Eska's chariot that was the most played card and that was that was the archetype you were seeing the most and that deck was not going to lose Eska's chariot deck what i had to take what, what i took away from it though was that it was not also holding up against the other decks in the format which i was looking to to kind of build a more complete version but the biggest thing i learned from it was just how good the blue two drops were. Like, the Hermit, I could not imagine registering less than three copies in any of my blue decks, um, because in it, it's just so good against every deck in the format right now. It's the almost... body is not is not trivial. The backside of it, allowing you to, like, force through the Alarin's Epiphanies in your deck, uh, comes up all the time for me. And in so many of the blue mirrors... You know, it's about test of talents or like having like positioning your counter magic, and this just totally blanks all of your opponent's counter magic on everything except for your your creature threats, while also defending you from like from any amount of planeswalkers they're trying to deploy, um, any of their own epiphanies. It can help in counter wars. It's kind of like mystic mystical dispute, like face up on the table as soon as you cast it. And so, like if I hadn't played with those with that deck, I would not have understood exactly how good those cards were. And I think that the more that people have played with them, as you see on on the Moto results for the the Blue-Red decks, I think all of them were playing at least one copy. I actually remember when Azure Mage was uh, previewed, and, like, this card is everything we wanted Azure Mage to be times, like, no exaggeration, like, at least times ten. Like, it is, it does exactly what you want in all of the matchups that you wanted Azure Mage in, yet is better at every facet of the game. I'm going to say this before we move on. Suspicious Soway and, like, the blue hardcore control decks we're about to talk about here in one second, I'm going to segue us to. That, I think, has... That plus Hermit, I think, is, like, an actual plan to beat people, and no one's done it yet, and all of them have these really weird sideboard plans to, like, kind of pivot on people. I don't quite get it. But let's talk about that really quick. Let's talk about these blue-red decks that are trying to not really play goldspan dragon because i mean every deck we've talked about so far plays goldspan dragon and they're not really trying to play creatures and they're sort of trying to control the game get to an hour on epiphany and then copy it you know kind of time stretch and take over the game what do we think about those decks abe have you got to explore those so i haven't explored the ones without dragon but i did notice the potential for a deck like this um when i was building the deck that i hit mythic with and I actually did end up playing a copy of, uh, I think it's called Galvanic Iteration, um, the second best iteration in Standard behind Expressive. Uh, and that card with Alarm's Epiphany uh, is just a two-card combo that lets you take two extra turns, or you can use it to like uh, kind of beat the counter magic floating around in the format by saying, I'm just going to cast two of this spell and overload that. Um, especially powerful is the fact that the iteration itself has flashback, and so like 
during the time stretch, if you find another uh, another epiphany, you can just do it again, and it's not even that much more mana. I think my biggest reservation about it is actually that uh, I'm not sure that the pure control game plan of I'm just going to win by epiphanying a bunch with these iterations is something you couldn't incorporate as a piece of your plan in the dragons deck. I think there's enough wiggle room in the slots available for dragons to, you know, if if the control matchups are, are really popular, you can play an iteration or two and have access to that over the course of a long game, find your one copy, then start fighting over the iterations um, and, and the epiphanies, and then, you know, jockey for position that way. You could, uh, you know, play burn down the houses in your main deck if you wanted to, because you're worried about the creature deck. So rather than having access to all of your silver bullet cards for the the breadth of the format from the get go by playing this deck that cuts all the dragons and stuff, you could just fit the right things in. But I do think there's something there in just the raw power of taking so many turns in a row and really maximizing Alarin's Epiphany that. Uh, it can show a lot of like what there is to be explored. I think by the time you know maybe a month from now, when the formats had a lot more uh, work put dead. into it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That, that's a preview start for the next set. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, I know you love to talk about that, Mason. <laughs> Forty-four days. <laughs> yeah. So so by the time that uh, you know the format's seen a lot more pressure on it, um, we can see some of the ideas from there incorporated because I, I did think that the times that iteration came up, it was incredibly impressive, but I think that that's just not every matchup in standard. The aggressive decks, there's not really opportunities to be using iteration proactively with your other spells, which and I feel you like galvanic you need, iteration, right? The copy. Spell. Yeah. Galvanic iteration to, to copy spells. Like um, maybe, maybe in conjunction with Demon Bolt would be really good actually, because you'd be getting a discount on your removal spell easier to copy it. There's a lot of room there to, to explore, but I think that would be more of a pure control shell than a, than a dragon shell, and I'm I fear that the pure control stuff could fit into dragons. But I think that there is definitely something there to, to work on. I have such yeah, strong I... opinions about what's being said right now. <laughs> well, so I, I want to say this real quick too before I throw it to you, Spencer. The thing that I've really thought of when I saw these decks is like, oh, this is a response to Gregor Klauski, like these black black green control decks that are like, guess what? My deck is. Four threats that are going to win the game. I don't know if you've heard of her. Her name's Ren in Seven. And I have 25 lands because she needs them. And then I have 35 removal spells. And that's my deck. Figure it out, idiot. And, like, that deck is really good at beating the Dragon's deck. It just literally has too much cheap removal to for, like, the Dragon's to, like, keep up with in a game where both players' decks are functioning. So uh, I think that this is a response to that sort of deck where it's like, all right, idiot, if you're going to play 35 removal spells, I'm going to play no threats that you ever get to tap out and answer because I'm going to take all the turns. And I think that's that sort of thing. So, Spencer, what do you think about the, the things that we've said here since you said you seem to have such a strong reaction to yeah, the red controlling belts? I think that the is it turns deck or whatever people are calling it is like, if, if Mason's deck is inbred, this one is like... Like I just like I'm just gonna epiphany, which is fine. Like that is a way to win games of magic. But the thing is, is like I look at these decks and I think about cutting dragons, and I'm like, why am I playing Fading Hope? Like why am I playing like like what? Why is it with this on Fading Hope? All the time? I love Fading Hope. I just like like what are we doing? Um, I got Fading Hope, your Malevolent Hermit, by the way, when it's I, flipped I to protect not, it, it's hot. I, that is great. 
I'm not <laughs> saying anything bad about Fading Hope. I'm just saying, like, if if we look at the decks that gain percentage, do, that, like, is it turns actually is number one on Goldfish? I know that that's, like, kind of a weird stat. Like, it includes so many decks that, like, don't matter and stuff. Is, is it turns is actually the deck that gained the most because it didn't exist. Do you know the second deck that gained the most is, Abe? Can you guess? Um, no. It is blue-white control. Because just the same premise as this happens for blue-white control. Where it's like, okay, if I'm cutting Goldspan Dragon, why do I even need red? And I actually really like Mason's idea of like, okay, I, I want expressive iteration. And I don't actually hate the idea of just Jeskai control turns with like doom scar and like some of the things you get out of white because these these blue red decks while they're deep in very specific mid-range categories because of what red offers i don't actually know that they're deep enough as like straight control decks once somebody figures out how they want to beat this is it turns deck like with the right threats you're going to need something to answer those threats I have a I have a hard time believing that like blue red straight control is the answer, but I've been wrong a lot of times on this podcast. So I wonder how much of it could have been that on you know because on Magic Online it's not open deck lists or anything like people might have experienced in the SCGs. How many of the opponents of this turns deck just thought they were playing against Dragon's opponent? So many. Like I think that there's there it doesn't come up so often anymore. I think because especially uh, even before COVID. The amount of just open information there was about the decks people were playing, the way it moves through social media is really different. But this definitely feels like a thing where, you know, people were probably like, oh, I've got to have my answers to Goldspan Dragon in the postboard games. And there were just still no dragons to be seen. It's so crazy, too, because, like, if you lose game one to this deck, you're like, man, they had a weird dragon's draw. Or let's say you beat them, even. Like, you beat them, then you sideboard wrong. And then, like, like you just have a bunch of dead cards. It's yeah. It, yeah, I feel like we're really dissing this deck a lot, and that's because I think it's bad. Someone keep doing it. Uh, yeah. It also just like cannot so be a malevolent hermit. <laughs> it like so like, here's here's the problem. Here's the problem with this deck, and this is the classic Magic player problem. Uh, they they do this all the time, and they go, "Oh, I'm so smart. I'm so clever. Why do I need to win the game? Winning the game is so so pedestrian. Let me turn on my ska and get going. Like I don't need to win." Like, I can just sit there. The, the <laughs> random jab at your co-host was not necessary, Mason. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. It, it you also never... don't even know what Scott is by <laughs> your own admission. I said that like eight hours ago, yeah. I don't know what Scott is. I just say it's a... I know he's like Scott. Digimon, know, like, my... Digimon the movie, uh, listen to the uh, the entire the soundtrack. soundtrack. Yeah. That's Scott? I didn't know that. I'll just listen out. Well, anyways, I, I just think that, like, losing Goldspan Dragon is a thing you can do. And you and I and I think if you truly believe that the black green or mono black control decks are the best deck, this is the best blue red shell we've talked about. Because those decks plans literally are like, "Hey idiot, you have like four cards that matter. I have 35 to beat them. Figure it out." Family style. And the answer is you can't, right? Like it's just almost impossible. But I just don't believe they're not only read that point yet or that people can't figure that out and like hold up a couple of kill spells for your token birds because you kind of need the birds to hit a couple times. Fun fact. And if you don't chain, Meteor Massacre answers all of them for three mana. So it's a really, really hard place to be. But then you're also weak against a lot of the cards people already want to bring in. Like you want to bring in your Malevolent Hermits against 
like the blue red dragons deck anyways and this sort of thing stops that same thing with cards like Briarbridge tracker like that's it's a sort of card that provides a lot of pressure against you a seeker spirit provides a lot of pressure against you and if you fall behind you don't actually have the bodies to stabilize the board and that's something that happens with goldsman dragon actually i don't know this is much happening on youtube i have killed a chariot and hadn't held my hold my goldsman back on d because having a 4-4 body invalidated the board and they couldn't answer it and so I think that sort of stuff gets underappreciated by Magic players. And they're like, oh, look how smart, how clever I am. I don't get hit by any of these kill spells. And it's like, well, that's really, really good if you run into these black decks. But they need to be an overwhelming percentage in the metagame. I just don't believe they are. So this is, such a, this is like such a Zoomer arena problem that I like where like everybody's like playing their 15 matches on arena in a day and deciding what the format's about on like day 17. Like, it's so yeah. funny to me. <laughs> I am curious. You know what I have not done yet? I'm going to look at the, the – was there a moto? There was, like, a showcase, right, for Standard the day before. If Mono Black was for the top eight of the showcase, I'll rescind everything I said. I'm checking right now. It, it's actually funny, though, that you bring that up because I actually did stop playing the Blue Red Dragons deck because of these Black Snow decks to the point where, like, I switched to Mono White because I was like, well, this six-mana Wrath is never beating – this deck, like in a million years, and I was right. Yeah. It literally cannot. Uh, for the record, there are no mono blacks in the top eight. There are like eight Briarbridge tracker decks, though. <laughs> there are just like actual yeah. six Briarbridge tracker decks in the top eight, uh, which is funny because there are none, I believe. Well, maybe there's one in the challenge the next day. It's just how things change. Should we um, should we dive in? We kind of got a rapid yeah, fire here. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hit the key cards. There. I think we've talked enough about the spell there. So. We've talked about kind of all the creatures over the course of this episode when it comes to these blue-red decks and we should be looking at. But just to kind of hit through these really quick, because I think the spells kind of got underappreciated during our times. So I'd love to spend a little more on that. But Goldspan Dragon is kind of like the blue-red de facto threat. So it ends the game very quickly and gives you a huge man advantage. That's great. And then things like Malevolent Hermit and either Egg or Moonvale Regent or Emirath, the Desert to Doom, or Illarath, the Desert Doom. Those are kind of the other creatures that are going to be going in your deck. And depending on if you play a Delver variant, you might play something like Castaway or Delver of Secrets. And if you're playing these control variants, you don't have any of that sort of stuff. Um, the spells are kind of the interesting part that we haven't really talked about. Because like we've mentioned Expressive Iteration, Alarons Epiphany, and the various removal spells a good bit. But there are a lot of really strong things uh, going on in the blue-red section with spells. And Divide by Zero is one of the strongest ones. And I mentioned earlier in the podcast how Divide by Zero is like a bad Aethergust or a bad Remand. But there's a lot of room for that to be good. And Abe, I know that Divide by Zero was a card that you were actually missed, maybe not missed, but didn't include in your first draft. And then once you played with it, you got really big on it. And so I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that are specifically. I Remand is a really messed up magic card. I think that that's like a, a key here is that even though we're saying like it's a bad Remand, you know, like blue you know, it's a bounce spell that doesn't bounce. Remand's so good. It's blue and the, the way that... The um the way that the dragons deck play and in general just goldspan dragon wants you to play is to get the game to a point where you're gonna be able to use your mana advantage to do something powerful. Divide by Zero is a card that purely generates a mana advantage, but also because of the lesson mechanic, the the learn mechanic with lessons, it doesn't cost you card economy to be generating that mana advantage. So just like goldspan dragon giving you those treasures and you know reducing its own cost or allowing you to cast epiphany is free value on top to this card you already want to play divide by zero is the same thing and 
it, it just plays so well with the the way the deck wants to work because you really are trying to just create a window just long enough for you to go like okay now the board's in a in a place where if i epiphany and cast a dragon or you know cast two dragons or two epiphanies or whatever like when i when i start going off and doing my thing to get to my late game this is how it is and divide by zero does so much to slow down um the mid-range decks with their chariots and their wrens um it can do things like break up blizzard brawls i've done that a good amount on ladder against mono green um and just you know or even save your own spells from counter magic uh the card's just really versatile and the like learn mechanic uh plays really well in the deck